announcements. Uh, we are now in the still in the registration period for Chafer Seminary courses, but it's too late to get free registration. You have to pay a registration fee now. And um, uh, West Houston Bible Church members can take up to two courses tuition free. And their website is chafer.edu. Also, this Saturday is the men's prayer breakfast. So uh, you guys plan on being here. And we always eat well and have, have a, a good discussion as we're going through Francis Schaeffer's material in How Should We Then Live? And also the annual congregation meeting is coming up in a few weeks on February the 6th, immediately following uh, the morning worship service. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time together. And we'll have a few moments of silent prayer first to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together tonight to focus upon you, to focus upon your word, to be reminded about that you are the creator of all things. You have created all things in the heavens, in the seas, and on the earth. You are the creator of the entire universe, and that this displays your omnipotence and your omniscience. And Father, we are uh, grateful that we have your word to give us a clear, precise understanding of your design in creation, that we might come to a better understanding of who we are as human beings in your image and how we are to relate to each other and to understand each other in terms of the distinct uh, roles and responsibilities which you have given to men and women. Help us as we work through the topic and understand what your word says we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're continuing our sub-series in Judges that's focusing on uh, what the Bible teaches about the role of men and women. And as I said at the beginning of this series, just to remind you, is that this episode with Deborah and Barak in Judges chapters 4 and 5 is always the first objection that is brought up uh, whenever anyone is looking at passages in 1 Corinthians 11 or second or 1 uh, Timothy uh, chapter 2 related to the role distinctions between men and women within the church. And so this is why we have to do a little bit of a deep dive, deeper than I've done before, uh, in order to understand this view the biblical view within a complete biblical framework, that these doctrines do not exist autonomously or independently uh, like a series of independent walls that aren't connected to one another. They are all interdependent and interconnected. And if you start 
uh, pulling apart one doctrine in Scripture, then it has a reverberation effect into just about every other doctrine. And if you start looking at Scriptures and denying the literal interpretation of Scriptures in one place, it affects many other places in Scripture. And so we can't come along without understanding how the totality of Scripture fits together. And so tonight, we're going to get to what I didn't get to last week, I hope. Uh, Function drives form. What I mean by that is when God designed male and female, he gave specific purposes to each. And that function drove the form of males and females. And that's what we see in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. But in Genesis 3, we discover that sin uh, corrupts us constitutionally. We have a constitutional defect, a flaw as a result of sin. And so what God originally designed in the relationship between men and, wo- men and women and between, of course, all human beings with one another is significantly, significantly flawed by the fact that we're all self-absorbed sinners. And so we, we can't and we're not going to leave that out of our equation. So in terms of what we saw in Judges, and just to remind you of a couple of things, The theme in Judges is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It is hyper-individualism. Everybody makes up their own rules as they go along. It's just the same as what we have today. We have in postmodernism and in um, uh, moral and, and ethical relativism, everybody just making up their own code of conduct, their own standards, basically doing what they want in order to validate their own sinfulness. And I had this quote, which I thought was so good, I would repeat it this week, from uh, Yuval Levin, who is a very astute um, conservative uh, commentator and writer and uh, has written numerous essays in a number of different publications And he writes that the ethic of our age has been aptly called expressive individualism. And where do we express it? We express it on social media. We express it on Instagram. We express it on Facebook. We express it on all the different uh, things like TikTok or whatever so that it's all about paying attention to me and getting the most likes and all of the other things that, that that people thrive on. And so he says that this term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning. It's a deep lust for validation and for approbation. And these are lusts in the sin nature. A yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. And then he says at the end, the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence you know, I'm going to define the terms for my life. God has nothing to say about it. It totally excludes God or anyone else. Frankly, it's all about self. Um, the capacity to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty. It's a redefinition of the concept of freedom and liberty. And, uh, and uh, it's also equated with the meaning of some of our basic rights, 
and is it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. All of this goes back to understanding what's happened within our culture as we shift away and have shifted away from a Judeo-Christian framework, which honestly still controls the thinking of, I would say, uh, a quarter of the people in the United States, whether they know it or not. It's, it's their basic worldview. Uh, it's not, I'm not saying it's bi- they're biblical. I'm not saying they're Christians. I'm just saying they still function within that kind of a broad Judeo-Christian worldview. But what's replacing it is nature worship, a modern form of nature worship, and we see it in the ecology movement. The ecology movement is not about leaving a campsite cleaner than you find it, which is what I was always taught uh, growing up and going out camping uh, in the wilderness and camping in the woods. It is about uh, preserving Mother Earth, worshiping Mother Earth, uh, that's what what we find there. And I've retranslated our verse here in Romans one twenty five to emphasize what is in the Greek that's sort of lost in the uh, standard New King James or King James translation, that talking about these fools who have rejected God and suppressed the truth in righteousness that one of the things that they have exchanged is the truth of God with the lie. I think that's better than um, the, uh, the, the way it was translated before. They exchange one thing with another, and they worshiped. And the word there is the word sabadomai um, uh, in the Greek, and it means to reverentially worship. And it just struck me because of uh, some other study that I'm doing, that's the way in which Yareh in the Hebrew, which is the word for the fear of the Lord, is, is translated to fear or reverence somebody. And that's what this is talking about. They're worshiping, reverencing, um, and serving. And this is the same word that is translated uh, serving is the word that is used for our service, Latruo, in Romans 12.1, we, it, it, both of these have a strong meaning of ritual worship. And here it is this worship and reverence, and instead of fearing God, they're fearing for nature. They're fearing for uh, Mother Earth. And so it drives them. And you listen to some of the reports you listen to Greta Thunberg out of uh, Scandinavia and her desire, she's scared to death. We're not going to have a planet to leave to the next generation and that we're destroying all of our resources. And it's just panic-driven. It's fear-driven. And it's promoted by those who uh, have a lot of different agendas, money being probably the, the foremost. And then they're worshiping the creation, not the creature, but the creation. It's the word ketisis, which can be translated either creation or creature. And the uh, uh, the main Greek dictionary, uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich says it's the sum total of everything created, the creation. And that makes better sense in the context because it's it's animate and inanimate creation. Not just a creature implies just animate, but they're worshiping 
nature. And that's what the Israel had to fight all the time. That's what they're fighting all through the period of the judges is this assimilation to they reject God, abandon God. Uh, they uh, turn their back on God and they're worshiping the forces of the creation. And instead of worshiping the one who created it, they're worshiping what he what he created. And in Proverbs fourteen twelve, we see there's a way that seems right to man. The Bible presents two ways of looking at life. Human viewpoint and divine viewpoints, just one way of talking about it. There's a way that seems right to a man, human viewpoint, but the end result is the way of death. And this is the essence of paganism, which on our chart of the breakdown of Judges is what we see, how Israel transforms into a pagan culture and a pagan nation because they abandon God. So we have these these issues, and it creates a cultural clash for us. We go to work, and we work with people who have a drunk deeply of the well of, of uh, paganism. And they bought into the value systems related to almost everything. And we think so differently from those people. We have to come to understand that, that we're truly missionaries in a pagan culture. And there's a lot to learn by looking at mission organizations and how they train their missionaries to go into cultures that have no knowledge of the Bible, no knowledge of the Word of God. They don't know who Jesus is and how you uh, approach them and how you present the gospel. You don't just start with the gospel. You have to start at a much more foundational level. But there's only these two ways. It's the Bible or the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel represents globalism. It represents internationalism. And if you pay attention to what's going on today, then what we see is this... incredible move over the last 60 years toward globalism and internationalism. And if you work for anyone other than a small company, you're probably working for a company dominated by a board, dominated by a CEO who believes that internationalism and globalism is the future and anything else is self-destructive. This is what they're calling now the Great Reset. And nothing has benefited them more than this pandemic. And it's to completely remake societies, cultures, and nations into this one uh, global community. So it's the Bible or Babel. The Bible is totally against globalism, totally against internationalism. It's Jerusalem versus Babylon, the biblical worldview uh, versus Satan's worldview, the worldview of human human viewpoint. We've talked about the chain of being, that everything in paganism is part of the same essence. Everything's part of the universe and shares in the same being, uh, and they call that God. That's the, just a term they slap on. It's not a personal God. The universe is impersonal. It's just worshiping the force, as it were, it's uh, the, the whole thing in the Star Wars uh, films, bringing this, this thing called the Force to the front, was very much uh, influenced by Hinduism and especially Buddhism. Uh, George Lucas was interviewed 
on a PBS special uh, many years ago, back in the 80s, which I just happened to be watching. And he talked, excuse me, he talked um, uh, quite a bit about how he was influenced. His whole idea of the force was influenced by Buddhism and influenced by what he had studied in the Japanese culture and that he brought a lot of those ideas out of Hinduism and Buddhism, and they were part of what he said there, um, uh, what he portrayed as the force in the Star Wars movies. All of this is monism, and in monism, all reality shares the same essence, the same essential uh, nature or being to one degree or another. So we, since God's at the top of that pyramid... We all share in God's being. That means we're all, there's God, the spark of the divine is in every one of us. That idea really goes back in American church history to the early 19th century. There's a spark of divinity in every human being. And it goes along with the idea that man is basically good. But what the Bible teaches is that we're not basically good. We're basically self-centered, corrupt, and evil. And that it, there's a need for sin to be taken care of, and God, God does that. And in pagan monism, it denies that real barriers exist. And what they mean by those real barriers are, are what we see as, as physical absolutes, genetic absolutes, how God created things according to kinds, and that God created male and female but in monism, those are just social constructs. Those are just uh, things that uh, society has developed and made up. And you can be any gender you want across a wide spectrum of maybe at least 120 different ones now. But this is in 180-degree contrast to biblical Christianity. And so that if you if you believe biblical Christianity you are going to be believing things that maybe you believed all your life. You didn't realize that it came out of the swamp, the fetid swamp of human viewpoint and monism, are that, and it's contrary to the Bible. But biblical Christianity believes that God created the barriers, the kinds, the distinctions, and only biblical Christianity provides the solution for unity and diversity which is in the Trinity. And we're going to talk about that some more tonight in terms of understanding this. Now, we looked at this chart where on the, on the left, God is the personal infinite creator, and he's completely distinct from his creation. That's called the creator-creature distinction. On the right, the universe is infinite and impersonal. It's not personal. And uh, within this circle of nature, you have God, man, and, and nature. That circle of being, they're all one, and that's portrayed by the yin-yang symbol. So all of this impacts how people think about manhood and womanhood. And if you're a grandparent, if you're a uh, parent, then these are things that you should be thinking about because we're fighting the culture right now on what defines a man, what makes a, a man a, a Christian man as opposed to a man of the world, the cosmic system, and what makes a woman a Christian 
uh, woman as opposed to the way the world defines a woman. So the way we've lo- been looking at this is to follow a, a, a strategy of first looking at the original creation in Genesis one twenty six to 28, then asking the question, does equal, because they're both created in the image and likeness of God, does equal mean interchangeable? where they can each do whatever they want to and one can be the authority in one home and the other can be authority in the other home and one's a leader and the other, and you go back and forth, you define it the way you like. And so we have to look at that and then the differences between men and women. And I've gotten right to that point the last two times and I keep adding and looking at things and reading things and then we looked at Genesis 2:16 to 25. We'll look at that a little more. And then we have to go to Genesis 3:15 and see the damage that was done to the relationship between Adam and Eve and between all men and women, the foundation for the battle of the sexes in Genesis 3:15 before we can ever go forward to look at what the New Testament talks about. We looked at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God, especially 27, God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So both are in an image, the uh, image of God. Selim has the idea of a representative, that's a foundational idea. We are to represent God over his creation, over what he has created. We are to, uh, in the unfallen state, man was given the responsibility to exercise dominion over the planet. Now, that's changed some because of sin, and dominion cannot be realized in a fallen world until the creation is redeemed. That's in Romans, Romans chapter 8. And this doesn't begin to happen until Jesus returns at the second coming. So there's always going to be limitations now uh, because uh, because of sin. So I had some observations last week. I'm going to run through them very quickly, but they're important to be emphasized. Number one, God specifically made the human race with a binary sexuality. You can't escape that, Genesis 1.27. And human beings can't undo it no matter what. Second point, that the human race was made that way for a purpose so that they could have children to fulfill the purpose that is stated in the two verses surrounding Genesis 1.27, to be fruitful and multiply is the first of five, or the first two of five commands in Genesis uh, 1.28. God created them in his image related to their purpose of having dominion and to rule over God's creation. Third, the image and likeness in Adam was designed to be passed on to succeeding generations. Even though that image was corrupted by sin, it was not erased. The fourth point was a conclusion. God's desire was a sexually binary human race, period. Fifth, if you have a problem with how you feel, it's because not because of personal sin in your life, but because of sin as a whole. We're all corrupted. We have problems because of our own sin nature. Uh, Fifth, on the basis of what we've just seen, what God said of Adam and Eve, the first human beings were true. Uh, what What he said about the first human beings is true of all successive 
uh, generations. Sixth, nothing in Genesis 1, 26 to 30, 31 suggests even remotely that the woman participates any less in the creation mandate than the male. Women share equally in the image of God and in the creation mandate responsibilities. Just because they have a different role doesn't mean they're less equal. If you watch a football game, you have all these different players on the field. If you look at a baseball team, they have nine players on the field. Each one has a different role and responsibility, and when one of them fails, then the team loses. But but they're all equal in terms of uh, their humanity. They're all equal in terms of being excellent athletes, but they have different roles to play. Seventh, the progression is that God created the human race in his image so that the human race, male and female, could together exercise dominion over living things. And in addition, he created them male and female so the human race could increase and fill the earth in order to accomplish that dominion task. Eighth, Genesis 1 does not talk about the roles of male or female or their differences. However, that uh, isn't doesn't justify using Genesis 1 and excluding Genesis 2 in understanding the differences, biblical differences between men and women. Genesis 1 states the purpose for the human race as a whole. Genesis 2 gives more details in the creation of male and female so that we can understand the idea of division of labor was embedded in the original perfect creation. That brought us to our topic, does equal mean interchangeable? And so we have to look at the hidden agenda of interchangeableness and the differences, the real physical differences between men and women. When God made humanity, male and female, both are equally in the image and likeness of God. That is foundational to a Christian view of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a human being. This is shared equally with men and women, but each had a different role. And so male and female were designed physically, soulishly, and spiritually in to be adapted for their role. It, it is a natural c- conclusion that if God gay, designed the male for a certain function, that he would create within him a male soul that was oriented toward that function. The same thing for the woman, that she would have a soul that was related to her function to be an azer, a helper uh, to the man. That's Genesis 2.18. The Lord said, it's not good that the man, that the male should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. That that means that, that there is an accord between the two. They're not identical. They're different. It's They complement each other. And today we have these two broad views over uh, the role of women and men, and the biblical view is called the complementarian view. And the uh, liberal anti-biblical view is called the egalitarian view. Now, that word egalitarian is one that is used also to describe uh, the kind of 
of results that you're supposed to get out of a socialist or Marxist equal society. It's about having um, uh, equal results instead of equal opportunity. So here's the current argument. Men and women are equal and interchangeable. I bet you could interview most people in your life, and they would, if you put that as a true and false question, they would say that was true. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If they're interchangeable, then they are the same. No barriers exist. That's where the argument develops. They can be, they can be a man or a woman. Their roles are completely interchangeable. Now, that, I'm not saying that there aren't areas where there is overlap, but there's, it's not every area. And those are, it's, what's important are the differences, not the things they have in common. What's the difference between a bush and a tree? Well, you can say they have a lot of things in common, but it's what's different that matters. It's not what's the same. And that's the same that's true for, for men, males and females as well. To assert that males and females are equal in the sense of interchangeability denies that which is of their essence according to God's creation. Uh, and thus it destroys their significance. So by buying into interchangeability, you will destroy femininity and destroy masculinity as God designed it. And last, by changing something's essence, you change what it is, and in this case, you destroy its value. And that brought us to these two key questions where I ended both of the last two lessons. Are men and women equal? Are men and women interchangeable? Does equal mean interchangeability? So men and women are equal, yes, absolutely. Are they interchangeable? The Bible asserts there is a difference between men and women, not in their essential identity as image bearers, but in their role and function. And this is important, that form follows function. God created males and females. Physically, it's obvious in terms of sexual reproduction. But it goes deeper than that, and that's what we'll get to before we're finished this, this evening, I hope. Psalm 103 reminds us, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We can't go out there and redefine who we are as men and women without reaping horrible consequences. Um, in order to spend time... Are in order to grasp what's important and uh, to, uh, to spend time on these verses, I want to relate something from Stephen Clark's book called Man and Woman in Christ. Now, some of you may be interested in getting that. Uh, it's a heavy read. It's 800 pages. And you can just Google Man and Woman in Christ, Stephen B. Clark, and you can download a free PDF. And we're going to put, I'm going to have chapter 16 put up on probably the next lesson. We may not get to what he says, but it's one of the better books that's been published and it came out in the mid 80s. So he provides this following, this quote. He says, the following quote from a discussion on what scripture teaches about women 
illustrates the position under consideration. The passages under scrutiny are three New Testament passages. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, I mean 7 to 16. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 16. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 35. And 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 14. After offering some reasons for not taking those passages very seriously today, he's going to quote uh, an author who rejects those. That's very common today. This is at the heart of issues related to ordaining women to be pastors. It's at the heart of a lot of other issues related to uh, sexual identity identity and sexual roles within, within the church. And so this female author writes, notice how dismissive she is of the Old Testament. But aside from these, that is, these three passages, each of the three passages refers back to the Old Testament. Oh, how backward they must be going to the Old Testament. But it's important to note that she at least recognizes that Paul doesn't go for his arguments to current practices in the Roman Empire or in Ephesus or in Corinth. He goes back to creation. That's important because he's not basing it on any culture. You know, we have this big debate over these things. Is it, is it nature or nurture? Is it nature? Is it the way God designed men and women? Or is it nurture? Is it the way they're brought up? Are they shaped by their society and their culture to think of their roles a certain way? And so uh, the Bible says that that it's the way God created them. It's nature. And that runs contrary to the modern, uh, to the modern narrative. So she says, in 1 Corinthians 11, the reason given for the ruling is that the woman was created from and for the sake of man. Now, she's really using language that slants her argument. To be created as an etzer, azer rather, an azer, as a helper, as I pointed out last time, you trace that word and it's primarily used of God giving us assistance. This is a high position. This is an elevated position, a position, and a word that is primarily used only of God. So she 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 shapes your thinking. But it's for the sake of man that's selfish. That's is written by men. They're patriarchal, and so they just want to force women into servitude. In 1 Timothy, we read that a woman ought not to speak because Adam was created first and Eve sinned first. That's not what it says. She's misrepresenting the text. It says that women are not to teach. That is to teach the Bible in the meeting of the church. And that's how the word teach is used throughout the pastorals. And she says, this takes us all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And then she says, in the second chapter of Genesis, which was actually written earlier than the first chapter. Now, what does that tell you? Pop quiz time. What does that one phrase tell you that Genesis uh, 2 was written before Genesis 1? 
Y'all, most of you were here when I taught that in the documentary hypothesis and the JEDP theory, that, that they're contradictory accounts and, and uh, Genesis 2 is, is, is written before Genesis 1 because Genesis 2 uses the word Yahweh and all you have in Genesis 1 is Elohim. And the E writer comes uh, two or 300 years after the J writer. That's why I teach you these things so that when you read something like this, you're going to go, aha, I've been educated and I can be a critical thinker because I know what she means. She's been influenced by pure apostasy and a figment of liberal imagination. So she says, which was actually written earlier than the first chapter, we find the whole Adam and Eve story, which most people now take as a myth, or poetic way of explaining theological truth. I don't know about her, but I, I don't know about you all, but most people I know don't think that. They think it was literal, a literal genesis, just like a literal revelation, just like a literal everything else. If you're going to think it's not literal, then throw away your Bible and go be a monk somewhere in a Buddhist, uh, you know, some Buddhist temple. So in this case, the teachings of the fatherhood of God and the fact that we are all one family doesn't teach that at all. In this second chapter, we read that Eve was created from Adam's rib. And she says, our class also discovered that there are many aspects of this second creation story we cannot accept literally. I remind you, J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, he makes the very clear case that liberal theology is not a form of Christianity. It is not Christian at all, period. So she says, uh, this second creation story, we can't accept it literally. Yahweh God fashioned man from the dust before he caused to spring up from the soil every kind of tree, and only later did he fashion all the wild beasts and all the birds of heaven and last of all, woman. Yet Paul here uses only the second version of creation in Genesis. She ignores the fact that in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, takes Genesis 1:27 and Matthew, I think it's 2, I mean, and uh, Genesis 2, 20, 24, and puts them together as equally authoritative, but that doesn't fit her narrative, so she'll ignore it. Yet Paul here uses only the second version of creation in Genesis. Unless we can accept the whole second story literally, we have no basis left within the epistles themselves for believing the sections on women are anything more than customs. And that's by Arlene Swidler, who wrote a book called Woman in Man's Church that came out uh, Paulus Press, which tells you it was a Roman Catholic pu publication, 1972. So what does Genesis 2.18 say? The Lord said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper, an azer, comparable to him. So what are some things that we can uh, infer uh, from what we know of God's creation of man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, first of all, male and female are equal in their essential nature as the image bearers. 
that is the first principle that is clear that they are equal in their essential nature in the as the image of god second male and female are similar but different because they have different roles that's what comes out of genesis 2 the woman is designed to be the azer to the man that implies uh, that he's the leader and she is the one who comes to his aid and assists him so that together they can accomplish the creation mandate. Sin hasn't entered into anything yet. Now think about that. What's the implication now? See, they're thinking that if there is a role of, sub- of submission or a role of authority, one having authority over the other, in the Garden of Eden, that that is an inherent contradiction. Because in their thinking, uh, submission to authority is evil. If they were to think very far, they would say that God created submission uh, to authority in order to solve the problems of sin. But they don't think that far, trust me. So male and female are similar but different. They have different roles. A man's created first. The woman's created as a helper to the man to aid him in fulfilling the divine mandate. Third, we see that there was an inherent authority structure in, in the way God created the man first and the woman second. That is brought out in each of those passages in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and 1 Timothy 2. And fourth, the principle that we have to remember from Scripture is authority is not evil, sinful, or even instituted to restrain sin. How do we know that? This is fundamental because, you see, if they're right in their assumption that authority and submission are imply inferiority, that is a heretical attack on the Trinity. You can't believe that role distinctions mean less, lesser equality and believe the biblical teaching on the Trinity at the same time. Those are mutually contradictory concepts, and let me show you why. Here we have a diagram of the Trinity. In the diagram of the Trinity, you have the essence of God, that each of the three persons in the Trinity share in the same identical essence. Neither, yeah, not, n- neither one nor the other is superior to another in their knowledge, in their ability in their justice, in their righteousness, in their um, omnipresence. One is not more truthful than another. One is not more powerful than another. They are equal in their essence. Every one of those ten attributes we talk about on the essence box, those relate to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally. But they are distinct the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. 
They are three distinct persons and not just manifestations of the same God. That was the modalism heresy in the third century, that they just showed up in the Old Testament as the Father, in the New Testament as the Son, and then as the Holy Spirit. So let's see what the Scripture says. The Father is in authority over the Son, but the Son is equally God. Think about that. The Son is not inferior in all, but he has a role of submission to the Father. If you deny that principle, if, if you accept the principle that underlies the modern radical feminist view of the relation between men and women, then you cannot believe in the Trinity of the Bible. You cannot believe that Jesus is fully God, and you cannot believe that God, the Father and God, the Son, are totally equal because you bought into a pagan assumption. John 4.23, Jesus said to the woman at the well, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Think about this. When in the Gospels does it talk about worshiping the Son? Will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. In John 5, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. I'm not autonomous. I'm not independent. I'm under the authority of the Father. I can't do anything of, of, him, of myself, but only what he sees the Father do. That four is an orphan on the slide. Only what he sees the Father do. He's under the authority of the Father. In John 5.30, he expands on that, and he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. But he is equal as we'll see. John 5, 37, and the Father himself who sent me, that implies an authority relationship. The Father sent the Son. John 6, 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me. And this phraseology of the Father sending the Son is also found in John 6, 57, John 8, 16, and 18 and 29, and probably several other verses. In John twelve fifty, Jesus said, Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me. See, he's under the authority of the Father. He's not going to say something that the Father hasn't authorized. John fourteen sixteen, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. So what we're getting to here is the subordination of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is also submissive to the Father and will see submissive to the Son. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. The Father is sending the Holy Spirit. In John fourteen twenty eight, Jesus said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I am. Is he greater essentially? No. He's greater in terms of being the one in authority. John fifteen twenty six, 
But when the helper comes, that's the term for the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you. Earlier he mentioned, said that the Father will send. So here we see an important thing that's brought out in church history. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and by the Son. There is a very famous event that occurred at the Synod of Toledo in the 7th century. And that was when you had a convocation of Western, that is Western European uh, uh, church leaders uh, that were not part of the Eastern church. Now, the Eastern and Western church had not split yet, but this is one of the three reasons that they will split, is that at this convocation in Toledo, they added a phrase to to the Chalcedonian Creed. The Chalcedonian Creed said that the uh, Holy Spirit is sent by the Father, and they recognized that that wasn't fully true to Scripture, that because of this verse, he's also sent by the Son. And so they added a phrase. In the Latin, it's filio K, two words, filio meaning son, K meaning and. That it, what it read before was the Father or the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, which indicates that the Holy Spirit is under the authority of the Father and the Son. So you have this hierarchy of roles in the Trinity, but they're all equally God. That's fundamental to so many things that has made Western civilization different from that which Eastern Christianity produced because they just had a, uh, they had a totally different line of authority and that is why you never had anything even remotely related to uh, democracy with an emphasis on the value of the individual developed within Eastern churches and all of those countries that have been uh, dominated by Eastern Orthodox Christianity have always had problems with with uh, an uber authority with with tyranny uh, john fifteen twenty six we covered and philippians two eight Paul writes being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself that indicates that he 's submissive to god 's authority. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to whom obedient to the Father. Was the father asking him to do a nice thing, a good thing, going to make you feel good, all warm and fuzzy? No. You're going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And you will receive the imputation of their sin. And that's what happened on the cross. So the father's in authority over the son, but the father and the son are equal in essence. But there is a division of labor. There's a division of responsibility. John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. So they're, they're one in essence, but they have different roles. The conclusion is submission does not imply or suggest inequality. It doesn't mean that you're less better than somebody else. And this is an important principle in every area of life to develop an understanding and respect for authority. 
It affects you in school. It affects you in work. It affects you in any kind of training. It affects you in sports and any kind of military. You have to understand that the respect for authority, and it never means that the person in authority is necessarily better or more competent or more talented or more capable than you are. There are numerous examples that we see all through history where you have men of uh, great ability in the military who are under the authority of someone who just really doesn't know anything about the basic principles of, of combat at all. So authority, being under the authority of someone, does not imply inequality. The position of paganism, feminism, and Satan, but I repeat myself, is submission means inequality. If you have to submit to somebody, you are, they're really saying you're not equal. This is why Satan rebelled. He hates being submissive and obedient to God. So he determines to overthrow the authority of God. Now, isn't that interesting that the original sin was rebellion against authority? And this is why all through the scripture you have this emphasis again and again and again. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that over and over and over in Peter, in Paul, in the gospel, all over there is this emphasis on the role relationships, leadership relationships, and authority relationships in a marriage. This tells us that the issue of respect for authority and proper submission in every area of life is central to understanding the significance of the angelic revolt for human history. Okay, so now we need to get back to our topic we're talking about the differences between men and women. So I used to love these cartoons when I was a kid. They would have them in the comic section in the Chronicle, and I've seen them in other books. And you have books for kids that are much more simple that they have in school that you have two almost identical pictures, and then you have to look at them and spot the difference. So that's what we're talking about. Can you spot the difference? Are there differences between men and women? Paganism says no. Christianity says yes. There are a lot of similarities. Maurice Chevalier said, Viva la difference in the film musical Gigi. So what does the world say? The world, that is human viewpoint or paganism, says that the differences are imposed by culture. They're all socially motivated. They're all socially sourced. It is just a social construct that there are differences between men and women. These cultural norms are designed by the patriarchy uh, to restrict potential and they should be totally eliminated. Maleness and femaleness are just social constructs, and the individual determines which gender they are. Notice I use they instead of he or she. It's a gender-neutral pronoun. All right. 
The Bible. What does the Bible say? God created male and female equally in his image. Each one has been so designed physically, spiritually, and in their soul to fulfill specific roles and functions, roles or functions for which God created them. This means that if we understood and understand the, the physical, the spiritual, and the psychological differences and social differences between men and women, and there's a lot of things that we don't know, um, and have never, you know, don't can't come to agreement on. There's some things that we know pretty obvious, and most of us think that men and women think differently. Well, is that designed by God, or just was that culturally shaped? I don't think it was culturally shaped. I think God designed men to do certain things, and He designed their brain to function a certain way. And he designed women to primarily do certain things, and he designed their brains to function that way. And it's interesting that women's brains and men's brains physically are very different from one another, that women hear differently from men. Now, I went back to try to find it, but I I couldn't find it, and I'll eventually find it years from now, that in one article I read that Men hear with one part of their brain, but women hear with four different parts of their brain that all come together. Much more complex. Women hear better than men. Women um, have a better sense of smell than men. And... um, you know that, it, and they all—they hear, they see a broader range of color than men. Generally speaking, okay, these are generalizations, but they—they—they they, they play, they play a role. So there is this distinction uh, between men and women. Uh, Jay Budashevsky, who has written a number of books. And he has written The uh, Meaning of Sex, which is what I'm going to quote from. Some of you have heard Charlie Clough reference one of his books, What We Can't Not Know. He's also written a book called, uh, for young people, that is called How to Stay Christian in College. Uh, Budashevsky is a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas in Austin. And before he started writing on everything that's Christian, he had achieved tenure, so they can't do anything. They can't fire him. Uh, he teaches courses in the law school and the religious studies department, and he specializes in political philosophy, ethical philosophy, legal philosophy, and the interaction of religion with philosophy. Among his research interests are classical natural law, virtue ethics, conscience, and moral self-deception, the institution of the family in relation to political and social order and religion in public life and the problem of toleration. So, And I have heard very good things from two or three people I know who have read that book on how to stay Christian in college. So he says, women in their essence have the potentiality for motherhood and everything that relates to that. And we're going to see in some other discussion, that applies to a lot. Women have a, have a hormonal production that is totally different from men, and it affects 
all kinds of things. I'm gonna, we're going to post an article on this uh, up on the website. Too much to go into, but you'll find it fascinating to go through and read about these differences. Uh, Budashevsky says, Men in their essence have the potentiality for fatherhood and everything attendant. This is not to ignore the many similarities between men and women, as a first glance recognizes with the two pictures on a spot the difference worksheet. To be sure, male and female are two kinds of humanity. What they share in common, which he would say is the image of God, binds them together under one classification, mankind. But a mother is not a father, and the essential differences between the two flow from the essential differences between male and female. Now, the article we're going to post is by Colin Smothers, uh, The Fallacy of Interchangeability. No, this is a quote from him. It's another article that we're, we're going to put up there that deals with the differences. And this is uh, fasc- fascinating what he writes about this. And I think that this it's worthy of me quoting the entire, uh, entire thing. Before we get there, what I'm saying is that form, uh, f- form follows function, or fo- function determines form. This is God's design that the man and the woman have different functions, so they have different forms. Um, Returning to the original idea that I'm talking about is that for two people, for two entities to be totally interchangeable, they have to be identical in both form and function. If you think about uh, any kind of fastener that you can think of, for you go to the hardware store and you pick up one, it doesn't matter, one or the other, they all have, they're all the same, they're all interchangeable. They have to have the same form and function. Uh, for example, a car can do much of what a truck can. They're very similar in many, many ways. But not everything, a car cannot do everything a truck can do. You have a truck for a particular function. In order for a car to be able to do what a truck can, it has to acquire a truck bed, perhaps a trailer hitch or a lift, four-wheel drive, several other things. So form and function are two different things. Now, the relationship between form and function is not always immediately apparent. Um, Stephen Clark says, he uses, that's in the book, uh, Man and Woman in Christ. He says, to use an analogy, the nature of building material, steel or concrete, wood or brick, will influence the way a competent architect designs a building without determining everything about the buildings designed. So form uh, is, is uh, a function drives form. Now, the modern problem is this, that we've severed form from function in order to make men and women totally interchangeable. Uh, and that what that does is it means that uh, human beings are completely redefining both form and function, and this has consequences on the social order. Uh, in, 
instead of considering the innate connection between the natural order of male headship in the home and the church and male and female natures, the egalitarian, egalitarian equalitarian impulse has insisted on the sole basis of the Trump-all principle of equality that when men and women are functionally interchangeable in the home and in the church. That is in, um, oh, that, that was my next, next slide. Um, we've severed function and form. This is the quote from Colin, Colin Smothers. He says, for the intersectional gender activist is not content with the triumph of the legalization of same-sex marriage. If men and women are interchangeable in both form and function, listen to this, which today is sacrosanct truth in, some, in many quarters, then for a man to become a woman is no great feat at all. It is really, he says, they are interchangeable and thus indistinguishable already. See, that destroys the significance of male and, and female. He says the functional interchange paves the way for a formal one. If a woman can do anything a man can do in the home, why the need for a man in the home at all? Would not two women suffice? Would not two men? The fallacy of functional interchangeability leads to sexual interchangeability and with it nothing less than the redefinition of society. It goes on to say, for the intersectional gender activist is not content with the triumph of the legalization of same-sex marriage. If men and women are interchangeable in both form and function, which today is... I just read this, didn't I? uh, Go to the conclusion then. He says, thus we arrive at the ultimate Hegelian synthesis, man as woman, woman as man, androgynous bliss. Remember the quote a couple of weeks ago? Androgyny is the sacrament of monism. So this this is what's important is to, to look at these things. Now, I have a quote here from Simone de Beauvoir who influenced generations of feminist activists in the 20th century. And this takes us to the doorstep of erasing the distinctions between the sexes, making the connection between functional feminist interchangeability and ontological interchangeability uh, clear. She said, in itself, homosexuality is as limiting as heterosexuality. The ideal should be to be capable of loving a woman or a man either a human being either a human being without feeling fear restraint or obligation androgyny she was married to the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre and once in a lecture he quotes Dostoevsky who once wrote if god did not exist everything would be permitted And that, for existentialism, is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist, and man is in consequence uh, 
because God does exist, forlorn. Scripture says, Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? So, again, I get right to the cusp, and now we'll come back next time. This will be posted up on the website, when I, before, but not before I get there. An article by Greg Johnson called The Biological Basis for Gender-Specific Behavior in Recovering uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Response to Evangelical feminist, Feminism. And it's outstanding how many differences... Uh, not just the obvious physical ones, but many, many differences that he catalogs and and documents. But we'll have to talk about that because these are generalizations, and that doesn't mean that it's always true the same way for every woman or for every man. There's overlap, there's differences, because we live in a fallen world. And a lot of the problems that people have with their identity confusion is because of the corruption of their soul by sin. And we all have had corrupted soul as unbelievers. And if we live in the pattern of our lust patterns or in the mire of our lust patterns in our lives, we can do significant damage to our souls. And this is what's left out. This is why I've always taken a stand against all psychology, because even 99.99.99% of Christian psychology, biblical psychology, is influenced heavily by literature that is dominated by human viewpoint thinking. We have to, the Bible is sufficient. We just have to be willing to probe it, to study it, to believe it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things tonight and help us as we continue to go forward to understand that you have a a wonderful purpose and design for men and a wonderful purpose and design for women, uh, that we're equal, we have distinct roles, and that's been so corrupted because of sin that it's very difficult for many, many reasons. And uh, we see that when we get to Genesis chapter 3. So, Father... uh, Open our eyes as we study these things that we might come to a better understanding of the foundations that are laid in Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.